Welcome to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast presented by Dean Duplessis. We bring you up to date with all the ongoing fixtures domestically and on the international scene. We profile players, both current and former, and tell you all you need to know in the world of cricket. A great joy and pleasure to be with you once again. Hello and welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast with me, Dean Duplessis. We certainly are rolling them out thick and fast at the moment and uh, having a great deal of fun in doing so right then. The gentleman who we are talking to today, well, what can I tell you about him? He made his first-class debut at the ripe old age of 15 years old back in 1983 for border against the South African universities. He then broke a record of Graham Pollock two years later when at the age of 17, or just short of 17, he scored his maiden first-class 100. He has a highest test score of 275 not out. He has a highest first-class score of 337 not out. I remember that innings very well. I actually remember both of them particularly well. He played 70 test matches, which he scored just under 4,200 runs with 2050s and 1500s. Daryl Cullinan, welcome to the show. So good to be talking to you. Hi, Dean. It's a real honor for me to be part of your show. So I really look forward to uh, sharing some cricket thoughts with you and hearing yours as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a it's going to be a two-way t- a conversation. It's not just going to be me uh, asking you questions. You're very <laughs> welcome to ask me as many as you like as well. So, and uh, by the way, listeners, if you do hear a bit of hammering, they're doing a bit of construction work just above Daryl Cunningham's head. So let's hope that uh, Daryl's going to be okay and that not, nothing or no one falls on his head. Right. Um, fun factor before we get into the meat and potatoes. Calamari stopped play. Do you want to tell us about that? <laughs> Hello? Tell us about that one, Daryl. Calamari stopped play. What actually happened there? Dean, you know, it's ironical because I now live in Paul and the very field where it happened, I drive past virtually every day to go and do some coaching. Right. And I wasn't aware of it for a very long time until, in fact, uh, when I did a few interviews, this came up. And as I recall, I was playing against Boerland and Roger Telemarkus was the bowler. But in those days, the grounds weren't the sort of stadiums we know them as of today. They, it was a club ground, yeah. so people would park alongside the boundary and get their scuttles out and bry. And so apparently I pulled the ball, I remember the shot, and then it somehow ended up bounced into some guy who was doing an oily scuttle of calamari. <laughs> And um, the umpires had to change the ball. So th- that story stuck. And I, I tell you, I get asked that question so often. But at very field, Paul Cricket Club, I see virtually every day now. So, yes, the, memory, the memories do come back. Uh, the pull shot was a shot that you loved so much, didn't you? Absolutely loved the pull shot and the cover drive. Which was your preferred between the two? I preferred the pull because you could dominate bowlers and the message was clear that don't try and pitch it short and I think it was largely to do with growing up I wasn't a particularly tall guy I really sort of shot up um, at about 16 17 and as is the case with little guys you having to defend uh, differently to taller players and then I had also at 11 started playing club cricket men's cricket in Queenstown so it did involve me having to defend myself well and play the pull shot. So the pull shot was an instinctive one. And there was nothing better when you really got hold of it and you were able to, you know, particularly put it over the boundary. But the cover drive is 
if someone generally people would come up to me and say that, oh, I remember your cover drive, which is which is a thrill, I must say. Yeah, I I, I loved your cover drive. It, it, it's um, you know it's something that I certainly remember listening to many times, be it on radio or television, and just the way that the commentator described the elegance that you played. The cover drive with, I think, is, is something that, that I will always remember very, very fondly. So let's talk about that match where you made your, your, your first-class debut. I mean, that is an incredible achievement. You're making your debut at the, at the age of 15 years old, and, and you're up against some fine players. Uh, I think of uh, Gavin Field, who was a good player. He was a wicketkeeper, if I remember correctly, wasn't he? Gavin was, yes. And yeah. in those days, you had six provinces. And then the, the B-sides had first-class status. And Border, in those days, we played against the top teams in our limited overs competition. And then we played against the, the main province's B-side, which would involve a lot of good quality players. Um, my debut, in fact, was against South African universities, which included Corey Fonsell, Eric Simons, a guy, Mike Clare, who played for Natal for many years. Oh, yeah. Um, so it, it, it was good quality cricket. Um, I'd venture as far as to say that it's probably better than what we experience and see today. And I knew that at some stage that I would have a chance to break Pollock's record. There were two games before I then turned, went beyond his, which was his age was about 16 and uh, I'm not too sure, 200 odd days. And it happened to be against Natal B., and Brett Proctor was, in fact, playing. He was the left-arm spinner. Oh, and the word. game was sort of petering out. And after tea, I think I was on 30 or 40 walking out after tea. And he, he turned to me and said, young man, you could get 100 here. And that was my thinking. So that was a real boost of confidence. And that's, that's what flowed after that. Um, I went to 100 and the record uh, had been broken. So I was pretty... Pretty chuffed with that, and with it then obviously came the news and the recognition and all the talk of being the next Pollock, which I thought was very unfair. So I had to live through that comparison, but that that died a quick death when people realised that I wasn't going to be the next Pollock. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you actually mentioned that because I th that led me nicely to my next question, which was going to be, but I'll ask it anyway. Did you sometimes get a bit frustrated and annoyed and disappointed in always playing under? a huge weight of expectations because, you know, it wasn't just everybody obviously always compared you to Graham Pollock because of the 100 that you scored, the triple 100 that you scored in 1993. I remember that, that innings vividly in 93-94. Uh, and, and you were forever being compared to Graham Pollock and, and you were always playing with this massive weight of expectation, weren't you? Yes, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that during isolation, we weren't exposed. And suddenly now there was an emergence and they could link a story to Pollock and that record at 16. But it, it was probably about four or five years and then became the, with a reintroduction into international cricket. But by then we had a good few players, I, I think, the comparison had, had died a death by then. But I was used to living with the weight of, of expectation, particularly from a young age, where, you know, I played when I was seven, I played in a nine. When I was nine, I played 11. At 11, uh, club cricket, 
I, in Queenstown, I've got 111 years old and 13 for Queenstown, we played in the Premier League in East London. I've got 113 in the Premier League, which to this day is still a record. Hmm. And I don't think anyone's, you know, and I was a small guy, there were no helmets, didn't even wear a thigh pad. And both both opening bowlers were in fact, they um, played for Border, Border men's senior side. So there was always that weight. And if I look back on it, if I had it over, I would have said, no, play in your age group till a particular age and then have a quiet introduction into first-class cricket. But that's history. I can't change it. But yes, um, it's it, you always feel that you need to rise to something. But I, I then it, it put, when I say pressure on me, it, it always made it frustrating, yes, um, because of the... I also put myself under tremendous expectations and pressure. Right. So it took me probably, I think, to about 25, 26 to come to terms of that and understand my own game and work out more or less what I could and couldn't do. But I wouldn't wish it on any young sportsman or any cricketer. It's not fun growing up with that sort of expectation, no. No, I'm, I wouldn't imagine it would be a great deal of fun. And, and the sad thing for you and for a couple of players who had these labelled with these various expectations, I mean, Graham Hick would be another classic example as well, wouldn't he? But Oh, yes. Yeah. You, you, you guys didn't really have the, the help that a lot of younger players have now in terms of sports oh, yes. psychology and, and counselling and so on. A very good point, Dean. It, it's so true. Um, our cricket experience, and, and I think you would relate to it as well, growing up in South Africa, we not only had that, but then we didn't have the benefit of visually seeing the best cricketers in the world or hearing them speak or uh, commentary, television, the, the sort of uh, development programs, pathway planning that a lot of these young players now, the exposure that they are getting to science, technology, the best in physical training, um, working with physiotherapists, biokineticists, and then your specialist coaching of in various disciplines now. So I think they are a lot cleverer. Um, their games have advanced so much further than what our games advanced, even at a young age, and then also emerging into international cricket. Whether they're actually smarter cricketers, um, I'm not too sure about that. Mm. But um, it's, it's far more structured. But my cricket knowledge and understanding came from a young age because I was obviously passionate and interested in cricket with cricket books. So you went to the school library, and that's where I discovered that Graham Pollock, uh, there was a book by the Pollock brothers, or there's particularly a book about Graham that he held that the uh, record for the youngest centurion. So that's when I started to join the dots and started playing for border. But I only discovered that there was no, there wasn't quick info, there was no internet, there was no going Google to understand what was going on. So, and I think probably benefited more, like I guess a lot of young cricketers during that era, um, even going further back, in that we we probably got to understand the game a lot better. You ask young players today, they don't remember. A lot of them won't remember my generation. Don't ask them who Bradman is. Don't sort of dig deeper into the history of the game and what it's all about. They, they, they wouldn't be able to tell you. I don't think they re would know 
or, or read any cricket books. It's all online for them, or they listen and understand. So it is definitely a very different world. But I'm glad I had the one that I had. I have no regrets about it. Yeah, I, I concur 100% with you. I think what I also believe is that players of your generation and older then also got to appreciate uh, a lot of things because a lot of the cricketers, not all of them, because we have a lot of cricketers who are are less privileged, that is for sure. But I'm saying that there are yeah. a great deal of cricketers who get things handed to them as opposed to having to work very, very hard for uh, what they achieved, such as yourself. It's very interesting that because I've been involved since I retired and just before I retired working with kids. And I found my coaching niche with kids from as young as five to about the 15 age group and beyond. And one of the most important things I look for, probably the most important thing, is resilience. And I noticed that there's there's few that really have that resilience. Um, I know that all you need now is enough talent, not the most talent, but dealing with failure, disappointment, that bounce back factor, and that, that to me is, is, is a strong strong feature that I look for. There's a fearlessness, a hunger, a passion. Do they listen? Do they follow? Do they know who their cricketers are? So it was also a transformation for me starting out. I was always interested in the best talent, but quickly came to realize that, that that's not the criteria. First and foremost, yes, you've got to have the ability to play the game. But it is it is out on a plate for them today. Um, the, the opportunity to educate yourself, to know from a younger age what's best and not. And that can be taken for granted, most definitely. And you'll always come back to those that are, are hugely appreciative. But it, it is also about their upbringing, their schooling, what they've been exposed to the environment. Um, that, that tells... A, a huge factor. But I always say to kids that once you have graduated or you've left school and you then, particularly when you've left school and the, the protective environment that you experienced at school in, a lot of them within two to three years, um, how many are still playing cricket? How many are still playing club cricket? How many in your era or from your school have ever gone to play international cricket? Mm. Then they start to perhaps appreciate, which they probably don't, or just sense the, the enormous achievement or what it ultimately takes. Yeah. But today, it's um, I in many ways wish I was part of this era because you, you, you um, have so much available, but ultimately you've still got to make it work for you. And that the key factors in, in that personality and makeup of a child, and I don't think you can necessarily teach it. I've been wrong about kids that I thought would have a future, and then I've been surprised by others. So parents often ask me or people often, what does it take? Can you teach a child that? And I say, look, it's it, it's going to be, I don't know, from experience, not just paying at lip service, which we all do. Yeah. From experience, I, I, the less I've actually come to realize you are not going to make it. All I can say is he's got the potential and that's about it. And and. You know, Daryl, you had a wonderful, as much as you, you rightly say, you know, you weren't... Um, you, you didn't have the, the, the luxury of being able to watch stuff on YouTube and, and, and of course, yes, uh, because you, yes. the majority of your, your cricket was played under isolation. However, the standard of first-class cricket in South, South Africa at that particular point uh, from the 1980s right up you know, through the, the early 1990s when 
before before all the big yes. domestic t or all the T20 tournaments kicked in. I mean, we we as youngsters, Daryl, we used to love listening to the radio down in Worcester, um, and and we used to listen to you guys. You know, a wonderful contest between yourself and Alan Donald or Big Brian McMillan, and and you know, yes. or, or um, for example, you taking on Pat Simcox and so on. So these were memorable stuff that I remember as if they happened yesterday. Um, and, and I don't quite know if we're getting that same quality or class of, of domestic cricket. You know, we don't see KG Rabada running in and bowling to Aidan mm. Markram and, and, and so on, because if they're not playing international cricket, they're playing in tournaments around the world. Well, you know, when I started with Western Province in 85, my first season, the, the highlight of the year, the season was playing the Transvaal in New Year's Clash. Oh, yes. And that's still of the toughest cricket I've ever played. Perhaps, yes, I was young and more impressionable, but put that aside, it was still some of the toughest cricket that I've ever played. And you're against the mean machine, which would challenge and probably beat most international teams today. Uh, granted, that was another era with what's available today and the ability and talent in that side. But... When I started at May 5, I was at Stellenbosch University. You essentially got released by your club to play provincial cricket. And your provincial practices, particularly pre-season, but once the season got going, your club practices was known was these evenings. And the province as such, we had to arrange their practice times around what the club practice was. Oh, wow. Now today, I don't think any of these guys, simply because of time for no other reason, um, they seldom even play first-class cricket. That's now a struggle. And then throwing all the tours and the circuits now around the world. So I think it's, when we talk domestic cricket, now we, in our times, and growing up in that period, because of the lack of international cricket, guys played more club cricket than, than, than first-class cricket. And if you weren't playing first-class cricket, you could fall back on club cricket to find some form, which happened to me, find some form, get back into domestic cricket. But let's appreciate the quality of the cricketers that were involved. A lot older ex-players. You almost had a duty once you retired to play club cricket, put back into the club, bring up the youngsters. Now, if you go around clubs, the average age is 20, 21, 22. So I think it's more di more by design. And I think it's a global it's a global issue. So you're finding guys making that step up into first-class cricket and then not being exposed to the very best. Yeah. And that's that's hurting them. I think England, that's an issue. Uh, we see it in Australia, South Africa, definitely. So when they make that final leap into international cricket, there's probably uh, an over an, uh, inflated opinion about their ability. And secondly, they're not playing in, uh, enough quality of cricket to, to have them walk into international cricket and hold their own. Now, international cricket is not a finishing school. Uh, domestic cricket is not a finishing school for the club cricketer. So I think it's a global issue that they're struggling with. What the answer is, I think they're going to battle to find it. But South Africa now have restructured, done away with that intermediary between club cricket, sorry, uh, between club cricket and first-class cricket. You had academies, you had an under-23 team. They now essentially are going to be um, bringing up, if I can call it that, an under-19 team, national team. And then all of that in between that has now got to get back into club cricket, which I think has got value. So that preparation, schooling, club cricket, first class cricket, then international cricket, 
that is a that is a problem. That is a factor, but I, I think it affects everybody. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I guess now the importance of A sides playing cricket is just as important as well. Before you make the leap from playing first class cricket, you you should have at least contributed as well for the A side as well. And and that doesn't really yes. seem to be the case anymore either. And I see India try and give their A team yeah, a lot of cricket. I, I think England do as well. Um, when the senior side is touring, I do. What I have seen in the past is then they would have a cricket going on in case they need to fall back on guys to uh, say a tour of Australia. Someone's injured or uh, there's an issue there. They can fall back on the guys that are in the country. But I, th I think it's it's probably. I mean, as you would know, Dean, where do you fit all of this cricket in? Because yeah. this international calendar now is is, is just become laughable in, in, in some ways and, and I think it's just a difficulty because you know, this, the emergence of all these T20 leagues and players want to play them because of a simple reason it's, there's a lot of money involved so you know we we're going to see and I think it's already starting to happen and I've seen from my experience working with older kids that the pathway to play in T20 cricket um, all you, you probably feel that you're going to see in time that guys uh, won't even necessarily have to play for their country to find a pathway into T20 cricket. Isn't and they will wow, graduate via um, a contract, say, uh, in IPL. I mean, take Deerwald Brevis. Yeah. Um, so, the, the, you know, 10 years ago, you, your exposure came through playing for your country. Now they're picking these guys up, yeah, left, right and centre out of club cricket, out of... I mean, the, the big lad is playing for Australia. I think he was playing in Singapore. Is, is his surname David or David? No, David. Yeah, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the, the whole the whole landscape and and where guys are going to and I mean, take a guy like the cock, um, forty eight tests. I think it was forty eight. That was it. Yes. And he's going to play T Twenty cricket. Um, he's got the he's got the badge. He's got the cap. Um, so the thoughts of. The, the, the type and the necessity by your country's team, I think, is fast uh, becoming and will become not the main criteria to make a name for yourself and earn a fortune playing cricket. As much as I understand that that is the reality of the situation, but that doesn't mean that people like you and I have to like it, though, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I I'd actually, when I, I played two seasons in 2000 and four, five, or it was one season of T20 cricket. And, and I said then, I said it publicly that it would be the saviour of cricket. I do feel that it needs to be almost classified as something else. Yes, we know it's cricket, but it's a skill set in a game which is very different to, say, red ball cricket. Now, now when we were growing up, you, you, you consolidated your red ball game, your long game, and then you ventured into a white ball game. Now you're trying to make a red ball cricketer out of a white ball cricketer. So the, the whole mindset's different. So we, I firmly believe, so just to give an example of coaching a young kid, so by 10, 12, he's got to have nailed the basics. You don't get another opportunity. So by the textbook, basically, to play red ball cricket, time cricket. But what I have adjusted is that at a younger age, T20 skills already at 13, 14, you've got to start introducing. Because that's uppermost 
in and 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 foremost in kids' minds is they want to play T20 cricket. The talk of Test cricket, there, there's not that talk. Um, that's what they want to play. So you put, you know we as a coach and thinking about it, it, it's required an adjustment. And I found it exciting because you know I had, I'm talking from a batting perspective. Mm, you have yeah. three dynamics. You've got Test cricket, 50 over cricket, and T20 cricket. And to be able to move mentally and technically, because I do think technically there are differences and there's some weird and funny ideas about coaching going on in the world today when it comes to batting techniques, which I don't agree with all of them. Like, for example, I would not have a test player play T20 cricket. But how do you stop him? Because he's going to earn potentially a million dollars. Until test cricket starts to pay them a million dollars, two million dollars, guys are going to focus on it. And those that say it's still a wonderful game, this and that, I want to ask them honestly, which one are you going to play? Mm. Oh, give me 10 or 20 caps. It's almost like, well, it's nostalgic and it sort of emphasizes your love for cricket and how smart you are about test cricket and everyone just talks about it, this and that. But how much good test cricket really happens today? Most of the series are duds. I'm pleased that they've started to juice up the wickets a bit so we get results, Yes. Um, which does kind of help. But should be played over five days. I have mixed views. Should be down to four days, um, and ultimately, you know, where 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 is Test cricket going to be played? Probably against your top nations. I mean, what what does a two match Test series mean? It means nothing. And no one's really got the answers, and it's understandable. I'm, I'm not pointing fingers at the ICC or whatever. It's, it's just become the landscape. So, so there's going to be casualties, and there's going to be a restructure of everything. I'm sure, and it's popular opinion. So I'm not stating you know something new that people haven't don't know yeah, yeah it absolutely. comes down to ultimately the future of the game and the growth of the game and what kids want to play and that's where i that's where i do my, all of my coaching and work and i can tell you it's very noticeable they 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 want to play t20 cricket because really at, at, at junior levels cricket can be a very boring game it's a very expensive game and the more they're going to try and change it the reality is is that the the, 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 the thing that they're missing the most is and i think of south africa and our situations where we're trying to uh, uh, develop the game, but it's far too expensive. Yeah. And those that tell me that, oh, don't know. So, you know, to get a kid out at seven, eight, nine, ten can be three months' salary for parents. So the, the, I'm a great believer that hardball cricket shouldn't be played till 13. You can play a, a mixture of indoor cricket, outdoor cricket, with the revised ball, no protective equipment needed. Change the scoring. Why should cricket be 11? I mean, you historian and know the game far better than me, Dean. But why was cricket played uh, amongst 11 people? I don't know why. I don't know. <laughs> why do we bowl from both ends? Why do we bowl from both ends? Why don't we speed the game up and change that? Why, boys and girls can play together till they're 13. I coach girls. There's, there's many a girl who's better than some of the really good boy cricketers who come out and show fantastic talent. And there's no reason with the right ball and the, even hardball cricket. But there's nothing more frustrating when you see a little eight-year-old playing a game. He gets 20, he feels for an hour and a half, he bowls six balls and, you know, it's a struggle for him over 18 yards, albeit. They change ends and then the fielding's all wrong, the coach is barking orders. And I just look at this and say, well, no wonder my two boys love soccer. And until they break this monopoly of Willow and the people behind Willow, which are only grown in England, and their persistence that cricket will always be played with Willow and pads and helmets, I mean, it's just, 
that is the biggest deterrent in the growth of the game today, but they won't accept it because those people are the very same guys who plow a lot of money back into cricket mm. and argue that, well, that's the only way it should be. Yeah. I mean, why can't bats be made out of bamboo? I've trialed bamboo bats. There's other woods where it actually work better than willow. A friend of mine is developing that in Australia, which I think is basically indestructible, which will last a lifetime. That is, that is so fascinating. The, you, know, make it, you can make it as many overs as you want to. I mean, England, with all their money, the reality is amongst boys, the game has slowly, slowly become less popular. That is the reality. Go and ask them, and they'll tell you that. I think the so cricket needs a needs a, a massive, massive rethink about what happens in Australia. Probably leading the way, they, I think, through the whole Greg Chapel plan, are looking along these sorts of lines. But I see no reason if you learn to bowl properly with a, with like a slash ball or just a bit firmer tennis ball. Yeah, there's absolutely no reason why it's not going to actually hamper your ability to understand how to bowl a ball. Whether what if the weight of the balls 100 grams or 135 grams in your hand, you're not going to necessarily learn how to bowl any different. Yeah, yeah. And if you've got a, a, a like baseball one, three uh, one size fits all bat, which you just pull out, they say you only arrive, you need a protector, and that's it, because it's personal, it's a hygienic reason. That's all you're going to need to play cricket and a pair of shoes. Telling you now to be a whole different game for various reasons. Technically, you'll learn it better. The ball travels further. It's more exciting. There's more activity. The way cricket has been played is my biggest, and I'm sure you hear the way I go on about it. Um, the, the way they're structured till the age of 13 is the biggest deterrent in terms of growing the game globally. No, I've, I mean, I've, I've, I've listened to you on many occasions. In Africa, in, yeah. You know, in, you know, in Africa, I've got a passion for African cricket. You know, there's 800,000 registered cricketers in Africa. Is that so? That's more than uh, I'm standing under correction. Yeah, I'm glad you will be corrected. But that's more cricketers in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa combined, and England. That is amazing. And I go and look, and the ICC is spending less and less money on them for various reasons. They uh, they're under pressure and this and that, and who do you develop and don't develop? But it's starting to change. I was with the African Cricket Association recently. Um, at their tournament in Benoni. So there's talk of um, it's not going to be one size fits all. Key hubs are going to more development is going to happen there and more for funding. But um, you, you know, Africa, how uh, can you expect? Do you know a top end bat? Gun and Moore bat sells for 12,000 Rand, 12 to 15,000 Rand. Your bottom end bat, which is maybe grade three willow, you won't buy one for less than four, four and a half, five thousand Rand. Now, in, in, in countries where that's prob that could be a month, two months wages or six months wages, yeah, yeah. what parent can afford to actually give them? That's just for the bat. So you've got to find different ways to do it. And and then you still have to include all the other expenses uh, as well, your, your uh, cricketing boots and, and everything uh, else. I mean, look at the price of a cricket ball. I mean... <laughs> A top-end cricket ball and, and a, a lesser ball, you can buy probably about five soccer balls. Incredible. That's very sad, Daryl. Yeah. That, is, that is very, very sad. So we, we continuously shoot ourselves in the foot as we want cricket to develop, but we make it as complicated and yeah. as difficult as we possibly can in the process as well, it seems to me. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, my, that's my opinion just through experience and working and seeing it for what it is. And I know from experience, so we do not need all of that to teach kids how to play cricket properly and we can actually teach them to play it better. 
I'd like to talk a bit about you and your international yes. career now, please. Uh, it, it, it was a great, you, you gave many, many people great delight in the way that you went about your business, whether you were taking catches at slip or, you know, um, scoring hundreds. It was, it was a, a pure delight. In the time that you played your international cricket, you made your debut against India at Newlands in January 93, yes. sweltering hot. Uh, which one of your 70 test matches really stand out for you? Is Which is the one that you will say, yeah, I will remember that even when I'm a very, very old man, I can remember practically the whole test match. Probably the one at Eden Gardens where we played, obviously we played India. I think got 150 in that match and I think I was not out. Um, can't remember the first or the second innings. Second but innings. I, not only that, but it um, was the the venue, which was remarkable. I mean, as Sir Gary Sober said, you haven't played Test cricket till you've played at Eden Gardens. As Rudin's hundred, it was last uh, Lance Klusner's first Test match. Yeah. And as Rudin smashed him, Lance came back in the second innings, got an eight for. Um, so that that was a real seesaw battle where there was some brilliant cricket played. Um, Tendorka would have played, um, and just the occasion and the venue. My first test, obviously, at Cape Town would be memorable. The the other one would probably be Sydney in '94, where we had to bowl them out on the last day, and finally De Villiers got six. Yes, that that that, that was a, a, a big battle. Um, being Australian, coming obviously coming back into international cricket, but off the top of my head. Yeah, and then I mean, getting to 75, not out again, going past uh, Pollock's record then, not just from a personal point of view, but what sprung to mind immediately was that, that Eden Gardens test match. It was, it was something really special and we had some good crowds, so the noise and just the venue just made it very, very special. And that innings by Azra Den was just the most remarkable innings. It was, it I've was. I've never seen anybody bat in test cricket like that. I, and people must always remember it since when I tried to explain to them, but you know, the first the first five days, a full five days of cricket that I ever saw was when India toured South Africa in the second test in Port Elizabeth, I was 12th man. And uh, then I debuted the next test match. Some of them find it very hard to understand that because they don't understand how isolated cutoff we actually were. Yeah. Um, in, in those days. But I think that Eden Gardens one, the Sydney one, immediately sprang to mind. That, that Eden Gardens one was special because, as you said, uh, you know, in, in South Africa's first innings, Andrew Hudson and Gary Kirsten both got hundreds. I remember that. Yes. You know, yes, and then Gary yes. got another, he got back to back hundreds uh, in the first and, and second innings. You obviously got that hundred. I love the way that you played Anil Kumbli because obviously, you know, everybody due to uh, the last time Australia and South Africa pl played it. So that Eden yes. Gardens test, by the way, was in 1996. And obviously people were, were okay. still talking quite um, obsessively about the battles between yourself and Shane Warne. So there was this immediate yes. assumption that Anil Kumbli, being a leg spinner, would get the better of you as well. And he didn't because <laughs> you played him very well. Now, what was the difference between the, the playing those two spinners, those two leg spinners? Yeah. Well, you know, when we ran into Australia and it started in the one-day series, um, my, my battles, my struggles with Warren started and it rolled into Test cricket with the flipper getting me out. I think it was two out of four occasions. 
So that, and then not being particularly friendly to their media about it. I mean, two tours, I did one interview. I just, I mean, what was I going to say? And I mean, they are absolute vultures. I mean, it's just the nature of, of who they are. Um, so that became a massive thing. So it was Cullen and Gone Play Spin. Well, it, partly, partly it was too. So I really then, uh, to try to get that monkey off my back, um, and let's not forget Sri Lanka and Merithirin. Yeah. I really worked hard to try and um, yeah, put that behind me as such. And then I think, again, against both countries, I averaged over 50 home and away, which would have been a, probably 15 odd test matches. And then it became now Cullen and can't play Warren. But um, Warney obviously got got the better of me. And if I look back on it, I, which was against Bob Woolmer's advice, I refused to sweep him uh, to play into the spin because that, technically speaking, wasn't correct in those days. I didn't really have an answer. But Kumli was a different sort of bowler. We played him more like an in-swinger. There mm. wasn't that yeah. dip, that flight, that big turn. Um, but I really worked hard on that and then worked hard on uh, a technique against Mulitharin, which which worked for me now. Mulitharin was interesting because it was with the spin, so I looked to sweep every single ball that he bowled, literally every single ball that he bowled. And before Martin crowed out, we did a, a stint in India together with Crick Info for about three weeks. So I was in his company all the time. So you know, just one night, him and I started to unpack this whole thing. And, and I guess I said to him, the first time I faced Mulitharin, he looked like a leg spinner because of that wrist. Yeah. And then obviously he had to straighten up and then he, he bowled at Duzerbit very seldom when we played against him. But then he had to straighten that arm up. So he lost a lot of his turn. I mean, he, he turned it massively in the beginning, but he developed that Duzerbit, which went straight on. And he said, now, Daryl, I thought he was a leg spinner as well. But he said something very interesting. He said against Warney, he looked to sweep Warn every single time as well. I said, no, 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 I looked to play him with a spin every single time and it didn't last very long. <laughs> but the only thing I'd say about Warren is people don't give me credit for my one-day record against Australia, which is not, they can't say that he won that battle, but it's a different type of format. So that that's never gets recognized, or at least I'm being given credit for that. But I think it was the fact that I did well against India and Sri Lanka. Um, and they had, you know, Hirwani, who played two tests for India, I mean, they had a left arm spinner. I mean, I had finished by the time Harbhajan Singh came along. Herath had started, just started when I was coming to my end for Sri Lanka. They had Dharma Sena. So there were there was a good few guys. But, in, but you know, Warren, in terms of test cricket, I mean, he, he was just too good for me. Then it became a mental battle and I really struggled to find a way out of that. But um, my wonder record, I think, tells a different story. Mm. And a lot of people, as you've just said, uh, don't really give you enough credit for, for that one-day record. Did you prefer batting in the middle order in one-day cricket, or did you like... I know there was a time when you briefly opened the innings, yeah. and I remember in particular the scintillating innings that you scored against England in the Champions Trophy in 1998 in Dakar, yes. which South Africa won. And I remember as you raced to your 50, Tony, the late Tony Gregg saying, he's played absolutely beautifully. In fact, he's made the bowling look, look rather silly. So is that something that you, did you like opening the batting in, in one day format? Um, I started at three and I really got off to a good start and I felt three was my position. I mean, those days, if you were averaging close to 40 or 40, you were right up there with the very best. Yeah. And then where I lost quite a bit of interest, Callis came along and they chose to bat me at four and Callis at three. 
Um, and uh, I, I had some periods in one-day cricket where I really, honestly, I'm pretty embarrassed to admit it, but I, I lost interest in one-day cricket. I focused more on test cricket. And then I think I was the first guy in world cricket who stepped away from one-day cricket. I only made myself available to play test cricket. Because I wasn't, I wasn't converting enough. I didn't feel the test cricket. I was playing to potential, and and then uh, they wanted me to play again, one day cricket. Uh, then Pollock was captain. He got the same said that I must open the batting. I never felt that that was, I was comfortable opening the batting, and then it kind of just drifted along to the '99 World Cup, and I think pretty much at 2000, I was done and dusted. Um, I think I played 138 one day internationals. So it never really got, besides that initial period, because I, I thought it was unfair that they shifted me, um, and then middle order, and then, um, I mean, there were one or two games I batted five, then I was seven, then open. So I, I felt that three was my natural position. Yeah. But anyway, that wasn't, the decision wasn't for me to make. But Test Cricket definitely got all my attention. And then uh, proudly, I think when I, Finished at 2000, I had the best conversion rate in Test cricket ahead of Laurent and Dorcan. But my sole focus became Test cricket, and, and uh, it definitely helped. It definitely helped. Because you, you had a, a, an astonishing conversion rate 2050s and 1500s. So, you know, you, you, yeah. you when you got past 50, more often than not, you would convert those, those 50s into 100s. I mean, that is. Incredible, you know. That's that's a m- way more than fifty percent. Yeah. You know, you you look at some someone like, for example, like Andy Flower, who had twenty four fifties and twelve hundred. So that's not too bad either. But goodness me, I mean, you you, <laughs> um, it's it's something that you obviously did with regularity. And I and I get the feeling you rather enjoyed playing against England as well. Yes, um, it was kind of the old enemy. Um, Particularly in South Africa, England, I never got a high test hundred in England. I think it's seven or eight fifties now that we, we're speaking about that. I, I found test cricket in England to me, and particularly the 99 World Cup, was a massive letdown. The grounds, the 99 World Cup, it never really featured. It was a long tournament. The grounds were far too quiet. The test venues were, to me, far too quiet. I battled to, to, to really get a good feeling for playing there. Uh, but back home, you know, I loved the Wanderers. It was a different story. Newlands always had a great buzz. But, I mean, they had a decent sort of attack. Um, and I, I, I just somehow, yes, I did click against them. I clicked at Newlands. I think I got five consecutive hundreds in five matches, five years there at Newlands. So yes, uh, I did, did in fact enjoy playing against him, but that's one of my big regrets. I never got a Test hundred in, in England. Um, yeah, that's a shame, Daryl. That is not a too shame. sure why. Yeah, not too sure. <laughs> Just one of I those things. A few times I got myself out, but I think perhaps had it come at, at, at sort of the, the second half, the back end of my career, perhaps it might have been different. You know, but but I have to say something, Daryl. That 94 yeah. that you scored against England at the Oval in 1994 oh, yes. against Devon Malcolm, <laughs> yes. who was bowling at the speed of light, that, in my opinion, was as good as 100. I mean, yes, you made 94, but yeah. the, the value of that innings, I mean, just talk us through that that 
particular spell of Devon Malcolm. I mean, we were again on our radios listening to Gerald de Kock and the late Kurti Hruvier and, and so on. And we were horrified, yes. you know, Malcolm just ripped everybody out with the exception of you. You eventually got out for 94, but that must have been unbelievable to watch. It was from a sustained pace point of view. It was the quickest that I dealt with. Um, and when you've got pace like that coming at you, you know, I've faced Akta, I've faced Alan Donald, you've got, just got quicker and quicker domestic level, county level. He had obviously been hit, so he had a point to prove. I think Farney hit him on the helmet and he famously said, well, you guys are history. But I had not played the first two tests. It was uh, England tour was on the back of an Australian tour, which, uh, and I got dropped when they came to South Africa. So, yeah. again, it just highlights, just to give you a brief background, we arrived in England. I didn't play the first two tests, but then we got a lot of county games. Yes. And then come the third test, I, you know, I'd, I'd done well leading up to that test, and they, they threw me a lifeline there. And so I walked in that test. I was so pumped up to do well. This was a chance to... Um, you know, redeem myself and and, be, and try and become a regular in the in the test team. So I relished that challenge. And I knew pace bowling was where I was at my best. But from a pure pace point of view, when you're dealing with that, you you can't doubt yourself. And it's actually quite exciting. You you're very nervous, but you can't start to think about where am I going to play this way. It's, it's pure survival with a simple thought just to get bat on ball and get underneath the short ball. And you know, in the second, when I batted there, and I saw some of the tough guys of world cricket, particularly Kepler Vessels, who had the uh, reputation of being this Mr. Tough Guy. He bailed. He had one almighty waft, one or two turned their backs on, on Malcolm. He wasn't easy to pick up because he was a slinger. And his hand, where you thought it might be, was a bit lower, so you needed to watch it out the hand very well. But it was an eye-opener for me to see, you know, the likes of Vessels. Uh, tank it, if I can call it that. Mm. Uh, so it, it was tough. It, it was tough, but that was an important knock for me. It was an important knock in terms of my future. Um, but I, I really enjoyed the challenge. But my God, he, he bowled. I saw one guy who didn't even get glove on at walk. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it was horrendous. And then we, the other thing I remember that test, correct me if I'm wrong, then Graham Gooch had just been dropped from the England one day side. Yeah, so they had about, I think, 70 or 80 to get. And Alan Donald really ran in. And the way Graham Gooch got so attacking, a point to prove. I mean, and Alan was quick. I mean, as we know, he was quick. Um, that to me was wow. I mean, this is actually how you play fast bowling. That stuck in my mind as well. I mean, he just got to. I think 40, 50 in no time with a point to prove. I mean, he slaughtered Donald. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, yeah. I know that Alan Donald was playing with a sore foot or a sore toe or, or, or something like yes. that. But Daryl, yes, I also know that right. there was a lot that's of right. irregularities in your dressing room at the time. I think, um, and I'd, I'd spoken to a few players who'd said that they'd kind of had enough uh, of Kepler Vessels, who was a, uh, obviously a very demanding person, um, and I've worked with him myself, so <laughs> I, I have first-hand sure. experience of uh, being receiving a tongue lashing from him as well. But um, um, he, look, I mean, we obviously don't want to slate the man, but he, he was a very difficult captain to, to play under, wasn't he? Look, he worked very hard at his game. He, was, for us, was a big bonus because 
our introduction into test cricket. I mean, our first tour of Sri Lanka, I think that we had 33 or 34 tests amongst us, and he was he had, he was 29 of those, which he played for Australia. Yeah. And then a couple went to the West Indies and played that one-off test. So he, he was of tremendous value in that sense, which is more by example and just the odd few words. But when it came to his man management, his interpersonal skills and his ability to, um, you know, inspire you, I mean, he, he ruled by fear. I mean, I hated that Sri Lankan series because, you know, I stood at slip and if he dropped one, you know, there was no, no one does it on purpose, but yeah, you just got the feeling that he wasn't happy till he got sconed by the silver was bowling, batting against Schultz and it went right through these hands and hit him on the head. I tell you, I think there were 10 other players who were quietly chuckling. <laughs> but um, yeah, he, he, yeah, he was, a, in many ways, he was, he was a very good example. He definitely was, but um, not a captain that I enjoyed playing under now. Mm, no, uh, I mean, Alan Donald, you know, really had an, I mean, Alan, I, I know gives, <coughs> or gave his all to, to South Africa, as I'm sure did most people. And um, he was struggling with that injury and, Kepler Vessels, um, unfortunately, when Alan said, look, I don't think I'm going to be able to take to the field. I'm in a lot of pain. And Kepler just kicking his kit bag all over the dressing room and, you know, shouting all sorts of very, very abusive stuff at him. That is that is rule of fear, as you've just put it now. Um, that, yeah. that, I mean, gosh, you you would hate to, you know, to do anything wrong. And if you do anything right, I'm not entirely sure you'd be recognized either. It must have been a very, very tricky time. So then we saw the end of Kepler and along came Hansi Cronier. Now, what was mm. what is it like playing under Hansi? I enjoyed playing under Hansi. I thoroughly enjoyed the, the one reason. Hansi had a lot of faith in my ability and he backed me. Um, but just completely the opposite. Uh, you know, personable. Um, he worked very hard. He was a great example. And he led the team very, very well. So I only have good things to say about Hansi. We know what happened and ultimately how it all ended for him. But uh, it, it was a breath of fresh air. And, and it also coincided with Bob Gorman's appointment. And our first tour, I think, was to Pakistan with Bob, but Kepler was captain. Yes. And it was very evident with the 96 World Cup coming up that our game plan was horribly wrong, particularly in those conditions where, I mean, Kepler just batted for himself and at 15 overs we had I think there was one game we were 30 odd without loss whereas Pakistan and Australia were Australia were close to 100 Pakistan I remember one game had 120 after 15 and Bob said look we've got to completely change our game and I think that was the end of Vessels Cronier was made captain and Vessels always held it against Cronier I think they never had a public spat they never spoke for two three years but you know, that, that was typically Kepler. I mean, eventually the young dog's going to rule the pack and, and Bob was never going to work with Kepler. I think him and Hansi um, saw more eye to eye. So it was an, a natural changing of the guard, which he, he couldn't understand. And I think he felt that Hansi had backstabbed him. And, but I mean, I think, you know, if you mature about it and honest with yourself and you read the situation, you know when it's time to go. And to say that he, he didn't, necessarily, um, you know, that succession planning make it a lot easier mm. for himself and, and even Hansi. But Hansi was a strong character. I think he put it behind him and got on with what he needed to do. And, and in Wilma, he had a very proactive coach, I think, who bought into his ideas of practice, fitness, training. And I think we were the first side in the world that had a full-time physio. We had a full-time trainer. 
And there was a period under Cronier where the rest of the world, particularly Australia, were, were, were looking at how we were doing things. It, it, it just yeah. felt to me, Daryl, that Hansi was the sort of guy who you didn't want to disappoint, not because of, uh, of you perhaps incurring his wrath, but because he was such a leader and he really did lead from the front. I would imagine his man management skills would have been outstanding. He's a sort of guy who you would just, you know, even if you'd had a tough day in the field and you see Hansi running out there to go and, and um, you know, have a couple of laps on the field, whether you wanted to or didn't, you just put your, your shoes back on and away you went. And because and he was a type, yes. that's the sort of leader that he was. Yes, he was. And he had that side to him where he was, he was never the most talented sort of cricketer. So he was, you know, he was appreciative of the ability and he had really good ability around him. But you, you didn't want to get on his wrong side either. <laughs> No. And uh, but he definitely took the team to a new level in all aspects. And again, you know, we were fortunate from that aspect that we'd had back-to-back leaders who they, the expectations and demands were huge. But Hansi just brought that more affable side to it all. Um, and you wanted to play for him. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed my cricket with him, and I've got a lot to be thankful for because you know he, he backed my cricket. But I remember. On that New Zealand trip where I got 275 and I got a 94 in a one-day game at Eden Gardens, I, I think at 50. Yeah. Um, I think I was on record to score the fastest ODI 100 ever, which I think Azra Din held the record at, at 51 balls. Eventually, I got out, I think it was on 48 balls. But leading up to that, he walked into my room and said, you dropped. He wasn't happy with my work rate on that tour. And I remember I was pretty angry, got working, and then those two scores, and I had a got 100 in the third test at Wellington as well. So he knew what I needed and he knew the purpose behind it and I was determined to prove him wrong. So you, uh, he, he, I think he read the situation well and read his play as well. And look, and he had conflict. There was at times one or two bowlers didn't like his approach, but he stood by what he believed in. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, I think he had a very successful period. And, and along came Sean Pollock. Now, I, I'm not so sure Sean really wanted to be the captain or wanted to, and, and that's just my theory. I'm not, I'm not saying Sean didn't want to be the captain of South Africa because it's a huge honour, but um, he was then thrust into a situation, unfortunately, due to the events with Hansi and that. Now, uh, again, a, a yeah. very, very different character, am I right in saying so? Very different to Kepler and to Hansi. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Look, I think he had aspirations of being captain. I mean, I think it, you know, during his period, up until then, his father, Peter Pollock, was convener of selectors. And I think I, I think it was perhaps a, a wish to see a Pollock eventually captain South Africa, but it wasn't really, uh, Sean didn't really make a success of it. I don't, you know, he didn't have those, those personal skills and ability to, he let, he, he let from the front. And he had high expectations, but I think he probably, if he's honest with himself, would look back on it and say that it wasn't a good appointment. And he wasn't a success, I can tell you, as a captain. But, um, you know, he was a wonderful, wonderful cricketer, brilliant cricketer. He could take the ball and uh, I just thought that he, he probably didn't back his batting enough. I thought he was a far better batter, but he had a way of playing and that was his style. But it was a tough act to follow. Perhaps it came prematurely. So I'm sure Ansi at least had another three years of oh, cricket yes. and captaincy left oh, in him. Yeah. So, yeah, he was put on the spot immediately. But no, I don't think he'll go down 
on and off the field as the and in the change room as South Africa's best captain ever. No. If somebody had have approached you and said, "Right, we would like you to captain this this team," is it something that you would have considered? Um, you know, it's something perhaps that you 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 find it difficult to turn down. I mean, leaving your country. Um, I always wanted to captain at some stage in domestic level. My first two years, I was captain. But looking back on it, um, you know, from a makeup and a personality point of view, I wouldn't have made a good captain. I think. Um, there's a lot, particularly that sort of level, um, the ability to, um, you know, be able to work well with your teammates. The coach is very important, and that wasn't my uh, that wasn't my strength. I mean, I never really made friends, even in even in the changing room. I was very focused, very much involved in my own game, and um, you know, I, I always took great pleasure in that. You know, Nancy always respected my opinion, and um, and and so that, that, that from first slip. View where I stood, just about every most of my test career, that uh, he appreciated the value that someone, not only your keeper and first slip, brought to the game, but he, he took note of what I had to say and my opinions on the game, and there were a good few times where he followed through with that. So I think that was enough, gave me enough um, recognition or feel good feeling. But no, I would not have made a good captain, to be honest with you. Dean. Do you do you consider your <laughs> do you consider yourself as a a demanding person, Daryl? Yes, I, I, you know, we mentioned earlier uh, high standards. I, I felt that I didn't achieve enough what I should have possibly have. Everyone had said that you're a far better player than that. Um, but um, you know, that's 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 also your strength. It can also be your weakness. Yeah. If I look back on my career. I don't regret anything that happened. I don't regret my career. It's helped shape the person that I am today. Um, would I have done a few things differently? Absolutely. But it's helped shape the person today, which I think is a far better person than, than I was as a cricketer. But that's life, you know. Um, and uh, I, I don't have any regrets, no. I think it's always wonderful talking to somebody who doesn't have regrets. But then sometimes it is nice to hear when they, when a person does have regrets. It all makes for a, a wonderful stew. But yes. talk yes. to me, <clears throat> um, your, if I'm not mistaken, this was your last tour that you went on, 2001 to the West Indies. Oh, gosh, yes. we saw some fantastic cricket there. But there was an event that happened or an incident that happened when some of the players decided to experiment with a little bit of marijuana. And um, <laughs> it, it was then uh, obviously came out that yeah. you were the whistleblower, as people called you. Now, uh, what, what actually went down there, Daryl? Can you, can you set that straight or back it up? Well, you know, we, after a long sort of tour, what, what had happened was that um, uh, Roger Telemarcus in the last test match and Herschel Gibbs had brought the marijuana into the changing room with a view of smoking it um, and partaking in it. And um, I had gone to them and I'd gone to Roger because I'd noticed it and I'd said to him, listen, you're in Antigua now. There's 365 beaches here. Go and do your shit somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And he basically told me to, excuse my language, fuck off. Yeah. So anyway, we left it at that. Um, I had my family with me. I then heard the, the following day, Gulam Raja had approached me about it. And he asked me, what should you do? And it's the late Gulam. I said to him, look, Gulam, you just come through the Cronier Commission, the King Commission. Fingers were pointed at you because of your lack of leadership as such, not taking greater responsibility or finding out whatever, which I thought was unfair on Gulam. 
because he was a lovely man. He was. So I said, you should put it, you should put it on record with Cricket South Africa because if it comes back and fingers get pointed at you as the team manager, nothing was done about it. So then they convened a meeting of the senior players because um, a couple of them and the physiotherapists we understand and one or two other players, Gibbs and, and Telemarcus, on the hotel premises and the room started smoking and there were families around it. I didn't think that that was the way to go about it. They needed to. They could have gone off. They could have gone off wherever they wanted to and no one would have known. So I didn't object to what they wanted to do. They'd grown up, they must live by their consequences. So the general feeling amongst the senior players, there wasn't anyone. I, mean, I think Pollock was part of that meeting, myself. It might have been Kirsten. It might have been somebody else. And the view was very simple. And I expressed my to say that this should be reported and so should they be reported. Um, and it needs to be put on record. Well, I don't know what happened next. The feedback that I got, um, that I think it came from Gulam as well, that Pollock was not in favour of reporting it or sending them home because that was uh, a large part of that was his transformation base, um, um, which I thought was, was a poor excuse. Um, and uh, so anyway, it did get back to um, Cricket South Africa. I left. Within a day or two, I was going to Kent, and then they began the one-day series. And then, of all, ironically, the first um, match we played, uh, which was rained out, was Warwickshire, where Wilmer was the coach, Bob Wilmer, and we had a day in the rain. So, I mean, it's been our coach, and I was close to Bob. And and uh, over many years, going back to even club cricket in the Western Cape in the early, the late 80s, mm. played against Bob. He used to play for Avondale. So we got discussing about the tour and uh, Bob and I spoke about it and I mentioned that, yeah, it was unfortunate this kind of happened. But what I, I didn't realise that Bob had got an axe to grind with Cricket South Africa. And I'm convinced to this day that via his network, which included um, one or two journalists, broke the news and supposedly I was the whistleblower. Now, I then was in England. I then phoned, when this now started to become a story, even my wife then approached Cricket South Africa and said, because I told her the full story, um, you know, if anything, my mistake was discussing it with Wilma, who I would have considered a confidential friend, um, mm. who was a coach for five, six years. So that was one avenue which um, could have happened, probably would have happened, which was endorsed. My name got thrown into it, which was wrong. And then I then phoned Percy Son from England and said, Percy, this is unfair. This is rubbish. And Percy Son's words to me to this day, this is the late Percy Son, was, Daryl, we didn't want to be caught. We decided to release the story. Right. We didn't want fingers pointed at us later. And that's how, with a combination of Bob and then my name came up because they wanted to join us. I know who it is, and I can't say his name because he might refute it, and I don't want to be of accused of, yeah, of putting course. words into people's mouths, and they definitely would deny it. But that's how I think the story broke, and I got accused of being the whistleblower, which was absolute bullshit, to be honest. Mm. Um, and uh, those were Percy Son's words to me. So, look, it was unfortunate. That's what kind of happens. I wouldn't have been the first. Remember the days where Wasim Akram and a few of the Pakistan on players, it was Antigua of all places. Um, I think we'd happened as well. Yeah, that's so, correct. I mean, yes. You're an adult and you want to indulge in that sort of stuff, go do it responsibly. 
Um, and uh, anyway, I mean, Gibbs, can you remember, was still under suspension uh, from the King Commission. And within six months, he violated that suspension. Um, so no, it was a comedy of errors. Uh, but I just felt that, you know, the way they went about it, and I voiced my opinion to team management, and as far as I'm concerned, that's where it was left. Unfortunately, others uh, took advantage of it, and those that didn't like me felt that, well, they'll throw my name into it. But that's setting the record straight. I don't think I ever have before told that side of the story. Well, I'm glad you could do it, and I'm very grateful that you're uh, Thank you. uh, agreeable, Daryl. Thank sure. you very much. That's, that's incredibly kind and generous of you. Um, we've been talking for over an hour. I guess we better wrap it up, but I get the wow. feeling you and I could have carried on uh, for <laughs> much longer. But just to briefly, in a nutshell, we got we got the T20 World Cup coming up. We got Mark Boucher, who's going to be resigning. So there's a lot happening there. What are your thoughts on that? And I I, I won't keep you for much longer. Yeah. Because, but what do you what do you no, think? I look South Africa battling um, in terms of their selection. Who they are selecting. I think Boucher's end was coming. Uh, I just think probably the uh, the strain and the pressures that he's been under as a coach. Uh, you know, he, he was also thrust into coaching. He, people said that he was successful, but I mean, he coached the Titans like seven or eight international players. Um, I'm a great believer you've got to earn your stripes as a coach. And I don't think he really did. Um, so I think he probably found that not only the, you know, the, the, the recent SJ hearings and, and all of this and all of that and his association with Smith and I thought Graham Smith just handled it appallingly the way that he appointed his friends and that created a lot of animosity amongst other coaches um, about you should have got the job and that type of thing. So I think for Boucher it's just been, thanks very much, he probably knew that the Mumbai Indians job was, was coming, he probably had it in the bag already and decided to walk on. Whether his contract was going to be renewed, I don't think so. Enoch Inque becoming the director of cricket to, uh, it was, we know why Inque left and Boucher was the coach. I couldn't, I just couldn't see how Inque was going to continue with him. Forget what gets said in the media, I think, you know. Yeah, yeah. South Africa's chances, T20, I think what's happening in India now, Australia is going to be different. Um, I'm a great believer, I've said it from day one, you win a tournament with uh, your bowlers. In T20 cricket, I select my bowling attack and then my batting lineup. Probably a bit more balance between that, you know, not quite as simple and straightforward as that. But I, I don't think batters win your T20 tournaments, your bowlers. And, and, and I think in Australia conditions, we've got a good attack. So I won't be surprised if we do surprise a few people. question is, can we get runs on the board? And I think you, you might see in Australia, you won't see necessarily big starts. Uh, new ball might do, but so that might being Bavuma's favour, that's not just going to hit the ground running from ball one shot. You're still going to play, play some smart cricket. But uh, uh, so we're going to need that at five, six, and seven. You know, six, seven, we've got the likes of Miller. I mean, I, I think T20 is also about two batting orders. Yeah. You have a batting order to the first 10, and then you have a batting order from 10 to 20. And so I, I think we actually might do very well, funny enough. Um, it'll come down to because we've got a good pace attack and you know, Maharaj, he's not the worst spinner either. So you, your three front-line bowlers, if you look at the history of the IPL, I mean, tournaments get one with teams having a very, very good and strong front three uh, bowlers. Um, the teams that start to run into using six, seven bowlers are generally the ones that go for runs because it's invariably that that sixth bowler or seventh bowler has got a bowl and over somewhere that goes that, that, that goes for runs. It seldom doesn't. 
So don't be surprised if we do well. I mean, I, I think we, we will. I think we might surprise a lot of people. Daryl Cullinan, my goodness, I knew I knew this was going to be good, but I didn't think it would be that good. Thank you so very, very much for your time. Thank you, thank you. I honestly look forward to Thanks hearing you. you back in the commentary box and wishing you nothing but the very, very best. Thank you, Dean. It's been a real honor to speak to you, for someone that's a cricket man down to his his, his toes, his, uh, his bones as such, who has lived the game. Um, it's, it, we're very fortunate to have had someone like you who has such a love and interest in the game and long may you live and long may you continue to remind us about what a beautiful game this is. Thanks so much, Dean. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you to, to listening to the Dean at Stumps podcast. We'll be back again uh, pretty soon with a, uh, another uh, podcast. And until then, thank you very much for listening and take care. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast presented by Dean Duplessis. Join us again next week and catch up with all the action in the world of cricket.